Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church this morning. Let's begin by praying together. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and we're always in awe of who you are, your grace, your sovereignty, your power, your love. We thank you, Father, for giving us Jesus Christ, your Son, as we were lost and dead in our trespasses and sins. He died for our sins and was buried, and on the third day you raised him from the dead. And all, all a person has to do is believe that good news about Christ, and they're saved forever. And Father, today we also want to pray for the church here and around the world. We just ask for your guiding hand and your protection and your comfort and consolation and your challenging, as we need that too. And we pray today that uh, all that will be going on here will be to your glory, that the Spirit would guide us and direct us in everything here, with the teaching, the giving, the fellowshipping, all of that, Father. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Well, good morning again. As many of you know, every month we sponsor a missionary organization. This month, it's Village Ministries International. Village Ministries International. They are non-denominational Christian ministry based in Oklahoma. They take the gospel and the word of God to remote areas that aren't usually easily exposed to missionary activity. They've worked in India, Nigeria, the Philippines, Central America, Indonesia, and Mongolia. This morning, I want to just read something briefly from their newsletter. It's called Joyful Progress. And this is a person who's been working in their ministry overseas, and he writes this. He says, I'm joyful because God has brought us together for his ministry, even though we live in different countries. We have visited some very remote areas, including several tribal areas, with the message of God's peace and salvation. We want to continue to teach the word of God in this region. Please pray for us. And he signs it, Timothy. So you can, if you want to uh, subscribe to their, to their newsletter, you can, of course, go to their website. And that's www.villageministries.org. One other thing today, we are going to be uh, having our outreach session today, right after service. Again, I promise that it won't be much more than 20 minutes. Put that wrong. People are thinking, well, that could be anything. That could be... But it's going to be 20 minutes. Okay, I say that because I know you have things that you want to do on a Sunday. Some of you, it's your only day off. But I do want to just make sure we have in front of us different tools that we need. Um, we have a prayer list now, and it's getting bigger all the time. And it's of people who are unbelievers in our, in our midst that you uh, desire to be saved, that you maybe even be evangelizing yourself. So today we're going to talk about that list a little bit and give you another tool um, in your tool chest. So I please hope that you can come today and be a part of that with us. All right. The title of today's message is, Why Not Rather Be Wronged? Why Not Rather Be Wronged? It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'd like you to go there right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. We'll read this passage together, and then we'll look at what it means. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 11. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous, and not before the saints. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, 
Are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. It is, is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but the brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers? Actually, it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now, we saw last Sunday, when we were in chapter 5, that ultimately the letter of 1 Corinthians, even though it deals with a lot of things that are going on with people in a ministry, as a matter of fact, above all else, and thinking about it from God's point of view, it is an expression of how much God the Father loves the church as the body of his Son. Everything in this letter needs to be seen through this lens. By the way... Most everything about our lives as believers ought to be seen through this lens. It's amazing how your life is transformed when you step back for a minute, out of the situation, back into the love of God. If you want to know, we'll go this today. If you want to get back in touch with the love of God, one place you can go is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It will be there today. It's the, it's the absolute opposite of the behavior that's going on in Corinth at this time. So we'll see more of that. But the love of God for the church and for you is unimaginably great. And not only this, but as members of God's family, we are members literally of one another. All of us are God's family. All of us are sons or daughters of the living God. We are his precious children. We got there not by anything we did, but by simple faith in what Christ did when he was crucified and then was raised from the dead. And given that, given that we are members of God's family, there are certain things that brothers or sisters should never do to each other. Never do to each other. And we'll see one of those this morning. We've already read it. So Paul is asking in this chapter, he's asking the saints at Corinth, do you not know who you are? That's the central question. Do you not know who you are? Do you not know who we are as a body? Because if you did, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing right now. Now again, the circumstances he's railing against is brother taking brother to the law courts of the unrighteous. Brother taking brother outside the family to the law courts of the unrighteous. That's the situation, the circumstance that he's very upset about. But again, there's a larger problem. This is the thing that he's really getting at. He realizes by that behavior, and by other behavior too that's mentioned in this letter, that there's a bigger problem than just what's going on in any individual. The bigger problem is they don't know who they are. They don't know who God has made them to be as individual saints, and as more importantly, the body of Christ. Because if they did, this behavior would stop. 
And I dare say that's a challenge to all of us too. Uh, there's certain things that we learn, but I'll tell you what. It takes us years, years to really let that soak in deeply so that we're living that way. We've changed. Yes, we've changed the moment we believe in God's eyes, right? We're born again. We're alive. But then it takes a lot of time sometimes for us to then live, learn, live, grow, so that we're actually so rooted and grounded in God's Word that that's the basis on which we make our decisions about how to live. So he's calling them on that, and he's saying, you don't have the slightest clue who you really are in Christ. In chapter 11, he's going to say a similar thing. He's going to say there are many who don't discern the body correctly. What does that mean? It means you don't recognize that you are members one of another and that this body is the body of Christ. Because if you did, you wouldn't be treating each other the way you are. The church is not a group of factions that are competing for dominance. They're one family, brothers and sisters. And they at Corinth haven't bought into that fact. And and i got to say too, Christians in general haven't bought into that fact either. Because if they did, there wouldn't be all of the dissension and conflicts and all the things that go on in many churches and many denominations. It wouldn't be. And so, and even us, I think there's times again where we haven't bought into that completely. Where we tend to move away from the facts of who we are together as a body and then start to adopt the thinking of the world about people inside the church. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. That's what Paul was really upset about. He said, you know... If you knew who you were, if you understood that you were members of the body of Christ, you wouldn't be dragging a brother before unbelieving magistrates, think about it, to press the case against him. You wouldn't do it. Any more than a loving family would, would, would reconcile, as if they could, internally. They wouldn't be automatically jumping out into the world, dragging in some unbeliever and say, you decide between us. But that's what they were doing because they didn't understand that they were members one of another. They don't recognize who they are. By the way, there's really one way to recognize who you are. And that is to to see what God's word says you are. That's the only way. You wouldn't know this automatically. Honestly, you wouldn't know that we were members one of another unless God's word told us. You you wouldn't know that you were sanctified and justified unless God's word tells us. And so it's the key to this, as we've seen already, is to grow by means of the Word of God and the power of the Spirit. They Remember, we've seen already that, that they were still acting like infants in Christ. And what do you do when you're an infant? You grow up, and then you behave more like who you've been made to be. That was their problem. They didn't recognize who they were. He, Paul's already said in this letter that they have been taught the wisdom of God, the thinking of Christ by the Spirit, because the Spirit dwells in us. And yet, they were, not, they were not using that wisdom. Again and again, they were turning back to the wisdom of the world in, t- in terms of the arbitrator of how they live. So what he really is going to say here is this. When it comes to conflicts between brothers and sisters in Christ, the least member in the church, the least, the very least, the one who is thought of as the least, the one who the world despises or thinks, very, thinks nothing of, That one is a better choice than the most prominent judge in Corinth when it comes to resolving conflicts in the church. Now, that is not what the natural mind thinks, right? Imagine if O.J. Simpson had picked a, a Christian peasant in California to represent him 
rather than that dream team of attorneys, right? The world would be saying, what are you kidding me, right? But that's not what the church says. The church says if there are two brothers or two sisters or a brother and a sister and they've got an issue between them, the best possible judge would be the least member of that um, of that congregation rather than the most prominent judge. Why? Because a believer, even the lowest of us, is already indwelled by God the Holy Spirit, is being taught God's wisdom. Remember, remember, the Lord through Paul said the worldly wisdom is nothing. It's foolishness. That's why. And again, I don't think we think that way. We think that it's better to have somebody with a lot of degrees and a lot of experience in the world. And that doesn't count for anything in God's eyes. He would much rather have believers, his children, work it out among themselves. If they need somebody to arbitrate, to judge, to be the umpire, pick somebody in the congregation. All right, so that's what he's talking here. The foolish among us, the ones that the world despises, God has actually chosen for his own purposes. Let's see, let's review. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Let's go back there. We were there a few weeks ago. Let's return to see... What God thinks about wisdom. What God thinks about the despised of the world. The despised in the church. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. 4. Consider your calling, brethren. Notice this. He's saying you all have a calling. You're all together in a calling. Later on, he's going to say that you all have gifts which are meant to build up and edify the church for the common good. Understand that that's your calling. You're you're all one in Christ. He says, consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh. How the flesh, how the natural mind sees things. Nor are there many mighty, and there are not many noble. But God has chosen. And he's chosen the foolish things of the world. To shame the wise. This is what we're going to see. We're going to see that the, the foolish people of the, uh, the foolish, according to the world, is going to be shaming the wise, the people who think they're better than everybody else, if they let them do that. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Peter, thank you. Our normal uh, usher in the back is, of course, not here today. Jack, he's enjoying a little time off. So uh, there's the new... There's the new deacon right there by application. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you, Peter. Again, he says, look, the world, they don't think very much of most of you. They don't think you're wise. They don't think you're mighty or noble. However, God thinks differently. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen that the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. That's what matters. He who became to us wisdom from God. Since we're in Christ, we have the wisdom of God. That's what he's saying. And he's not only that, but righteousness. When we believe in Christ, we're credited with God's righteousness and sanctification being set apart and redemption, having our sins forgiven. That's all who we are. And that person is much more qualified to judge between two believers than anybody in the world who is mighty or wise, according to the world, or noble. That's what he's saying. And I think all of us, you know, sit there and that has to challenge us too. 
Because because I got to tell you that I think most of us still, whether we realize it or not, evaluate on the basis of the world's standards. And God is calling us to something higher, to see people the way he sees them, to understand that the world may see this brother or sister in Christ as a nobody. But God says, watch, I'm going to use the nobody to shame those who think they have their act together, who think they're better than other people. Not only that, but this wisdom, this knowledge that they're going to, we so admire in people of the world. God says, that's foolishness, all of it. He's made it foolish. When you think about it that way, it makes no sense at all to bring a case against a brother before an unbeliever. Why? Because that so-called wisdom, that so-called, ju- ju- you know, the things that they learn, the precedent that they have, and the, all of that is foolishness in God's eyes. So there's a challenge. There's, in God's eyes. Now, don't get me wrong. On our, in, in how we run and operate the country and the state, we, and Paul will say this, we honor and recognize those legitimate authorities. That's not what I'm saying. But you have to understand that the way they think is really different than the way God thinks. And he looks at the wisdom and he says, yeah, well, that's fine. But in terms of how I think, that's foolishness. That's, that's, that's baby talk. So it makes no sense to bring a case against a believer before an unbeliever. In fact, as Paul will say, it's shameful to do that. And again, this requires all of us, this challenges all of us to think differently about our, how we live our life, who we consider to be competent and so forth. All right, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to start looking at this verse by verse. 1 Corinthians 6.1. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Think of it. I'm looking at people in front of me today who one day will be with Christ judging the world. Think about that. And the Lord is grooming us now. He's given us everything we need to do that. We have the very wisdom and righteousness of God. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And, and, and he sees us as qualified to judge the world. And yet these were having the, thinking the world was qualified to judge them. See how backwards that really is? Oh, we don't think of it that way. I understand. Especially now, our culture today is very much legal driven, isn't it? There are so many people who want to settle their disputes with lawsuits. And if you've seen how that works, it's not always justice that prevails in those circumstances. Neither was it the case as we're going to see in Corinth in the first century. He says, don't you know that the saints one day will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, aren't you competent to constitute the smallest law courts? In other words, if you're going to judge the world someday, right? All the things that were going on in the world, what was really right, what was really wrong. That's going to be who we are. That's who our identity is already according to God. And yet we can't settle a dispute about, oh, I don't know, money between two brothers and sisters in Christ. You know? No, we can't. That's what we think because we have the world stand. Oh, you better go to court about that. We don't want to deal with that. We're not qualified to do that. Well, you are. You are. He says, you, don't you know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, aren't you competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Now, angels were created a higher creation than man. I want you to think about this. 
We will, we will be qualified to judge angels, and yet we can't settle a dispute between two brothers or sisters in Christ? That's ridiculous when you stop and think about it. That's the problem, by the way. People don't stop to think about who they are. They don't stop to understand who God has made us to be. He says, if you're going to judge angels, how much more the daily matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? We're going to see a minute that in, in verse 4, there's actually, this, there's actually a better translation, and it changes the meaning, so we're going to spend a little time on that. Preview of coming attractions. But here we see one of the saints, at least, in Corinth, was hauling another brother into civil court to judge the, the case he had against his brother. Evidently, the dispute was about money. I'm not going to go into all the details, but given the context, given the things that are said, like later on he's going to say, would you not rather be defrauded? Well, that, that, that suggests that when you're being defrauded, it has something to do with money. You see, So this had to do with money or property. Okay? Very kind of a very basic down-to-earth issues that we face all the time. We face all the time. For example, there's, there's property damage. And you want to have a brother pay for it. And they don't want to. Or you were, you were injured, as you think, on their property and you want to sue them for pain and suffering. Right? Money. It's ultimately about money. It's not about the pain and suffering, really. If it's about the pain and suffering, where do you go to get rid of your pain and suffering? The doctor! So it's not about that. It's about money, right? Money is a big motivator. Or maybe it was a loan that hadn't been repaid. Or maybe there was rent that was overdue. Or maybe there was a dispute about who owned a little piece of land or an animal. These are the kind of things that would, they would bring to civil court. The Greeks would, the unbelievers would. They, just like today, they were um, really happy. That it was a thing that they did all the time, was to sue another brother. Sometimes they did it because they wanted to get a leg up on them. You see, think about it. You're rivals in the social circle. And how, what's a good way to put down your, your rival? Very simply, to accuse them of something and to besmirch their reputation in the court. And then people say, well, I guess he, he was right. This guy's a, you know, this guy's a, I, I, don't, I don't want to use a bad word, but, you know, he's a bum. He's a bum. And then all of a sudden, your, your uh, status is raised and his is going down. They, that's what they did very often in these civil courts under the Roman system. Paul was horrified to learn about this lawsuit. And again, he's just as upset with the church as a whole as he is against the one who sued his brother in court. And why? Very simply, once again, do you know who you are? You are not behaving like a loving family of saints. They should be settling these disputes. We should, really, in-house. I mean, I'm not going to name names, but I'll, well, I'll tell you this. I was thinking about this the other day, actually. I would trust any of you, any of you, to settle a dispute I had with another brother or sister in Christ. And I mean that. I was thinking about the fact that if we had, if there was a, a, something that we wanted to keep in the family, right, I think this group would be, I trust this group to do it more than, more than anybody. All right? That's, that's true, by the way. Why? Because... You've been matured in God's word, many of us, right? So therefore, we're qualified. We're qualified. But if you don't do that, then you don't really understand the love that is supposed to be between brothers and sisters in Christ. If they did, they wouldn't be farming out 
a case out into the unrighteous law courts. So very simply, this assembly was not acting anything like a church. That's what Paul was really upset about. They're still behaving the same way they did before they became saints. Now, now in God's eyes, that's a complete 180 degree change, right? From being dead in your trespasses and sins, to being made alive, right? To To be in Adam, to being in Christ. So being dominated by the flesh, to having the spirit inside. In God's eyes, he's saying, look, really, spiritually speaking, you guys are totally different than you were before you believe in Jesus Christ. Yet somehow, you're still acting like you're still over there. You're still acting like you never became saved. You're acting like an unbeliever. You're acting like the world. You're acting like your flesh is going to dominate things. That's why he's upset. The assembly was not acting like a church. All right, let's talk a little bit about lawsuits in the first century AD. I bet you didn't think we'd be listening to that this morning, but we have to because you better understand this passage by a long shot. If you understand the nature of these law courts that Paul was saying you should never bring a brother into. So let's take a look at that. What was it like to be a party to a lawsuit in a Roman civil court at that time? Now, now notice I say civil court. There's a reason for that. You know how there's criminal courts and civil courts? Civil, criminal courts are somebody who's broken the law, right? Civil courts are disputes between people that don't involve a crime. Well, it turns out that in Roman times, the criminal courts were on the up and up for the most part. It was the civil courts that were different. They were a horse of a different color, as they say. They used to say. I don't even know if they say that anymore. But they were totally different. Criminal courts, pretty fair. Civil courts, not at all. As a matter of fact, the civil courts at that time were biased. They were biased in favor of the rich and the powerful. And that ought not surprise us. Is it any different really today? No, it's the same thing. We'll talk a little bit about why. Well, here's one reason why. OJ, right? The rich people could hire a you know, high-powered attorney, right? in their case. The poor could never afford one of those. The rich were of the same social class as the magistrates. That carries a lot of weight, don't you think? They're much more likely to believe somebody in their own social class than they were some lowly, poor person. And not only that, judging juries, juries too had their hands out for bribes back then. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew that was a way to play the system. Well, who can outbid the other? If it's an issue of bribe, the rich can outbid the poor. The poor might say, well, I know I have to bribe you here. I'll give you a dollar. <laughs> and the rich said, well, no, I'm going to bribe you to win. I'm going to give you $1,000. So when you're in a system that requires, by the way, this system today prevails in most of the world. I don't know if you know that or not. But people, most, most civil officials in the world, other than the United States and a couple of the Western countries, expect to be bribed before they'll do anything on behalf of somebody. So this isn't foreign to, well, it's foreign to the United States, but it's going on in the world today. As a matter of fact, this bias was so blatant and so unfair that the poor, listen to this now, the poor and the powerless almost never even bothered to bring a case against their rich social betters. They didn't even bother. Why? They knew beforehand that they were going to lose, right? They knew their chances were almost non-existent that they would win. 
And think about it. You're, you're a poor person. You're going after a rich and powerful person. You lose the case. And what do you think is going to happen after that? It won't be over with losing the case. They're going to still persecute you and put you down and so forth. And so will their friends, right? How dare you bring a case against, you know, this prominent fellow? Okay, so they didn't bother. They may have a legitimate case. They didn't even bother to bring it. So why do I say all this? Well, it's because the overwhelming majority, going back to thinking about the church and a brother bringing a brother into the civil courts, the fact is that the overwhelming majority of civil cases were brought by the wealthy against the poor. You see, the poor think they could never win. The the wealthy think they can't lose. So who's going to go to court? The one who thinks they can't lose there. Not the one who thinks there's no chance. So what this meant was that the overwhelming majority of cases brought for the civil courts at that time were brought by the wealthy against the poor. So I want you to think about that. I want you to think about the church and ask yourself the question, who is it that was probably bringing a brother into court? The overwhelming majority of civil cases were brought by the wealthy against the poor. So who in Corinth was probably bringing a case against his brother? The wealthy, right. Right. They, they, they understood that, you know, I'm a wealthy, upper-class member of the church. Remember, there were some. We'll see more about them later when we get to the Lord's Supper and, the, and what was going on there, the scandal there. Had the same thing, rich versus poor. So they figured, you know, I'm definitely going to win. So they, they would, it's very likely that the one who was the bring in the suit was wealthy against a poor brother or sister. Now, sometimes it was between two prominent individuals. And that could have been two, you know, again, seeking to raise their status over the other. This could have been the case because, remember, there were factions in Corinth. They were vying for supremacy in that church. So what better way to beat out your competitor than to go to court and sue them and have their reputation destroyed, and then you would be more prominent, more likely to be dominant in the church. As you can imagine, this sort of thing would really tear apart the church. You know how it is. There's a case. Oh, so-and-so is suing so-and-so. Oh, I'm interested in how that turns out. As a matter of fact, I sure want that one to win. Or I sure want this one to win. Right? That's natural, what would happen. That's not doing, breaking the church into two pieces. Right? Maybe there were people who, at this time, were clients of the wealthy. In other words, they depended on this wealthy family for their livelihood. Who do you think they're going to support? The wealthy, right. So, and then the people who feel like they're um, treated poorly, might, they might be the ones that support the poor. They'd be poor on one side, rich on the other. How's that for, for a church that's divided? Bad, right? Bad, okay. So but this is why Paul is so upset. It's not just a matter of, uh, well, you went to the wrong court, buddy. No, it's a matter of what you're doing is splitting the church apart. Remember already what Paul said about the, the, the fact that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. He said, if anyone tries to destroy the temple of the Spirit, God will destroy him. That's how seriously God takes divisions. Okay. That kind of thing, suing like that, would destroy a church. Could. Tear it apart anyway. 
All right, let's go to verse 2, chapter 6, verse 2. Next verse. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more ordinary matters of everyday life? Ordinary matters of everyday life. You're not competent to do that, and yet someday you're going to judge angels. By the way, this expression, do you not know, it occurs, it occurs about a dozen times in the New Testament. Six of them are in chapter 6. That tells you something about what's really going on with these issues, okay? What does it tell us? It, it tells us this, that the Corinthians should have known better. Do you not know? Right? Don't you know? You should know this. You should have known better than to ever behave that way. Don't we say that about people? Like in the family at times? You know, they're, they're, they think they're so grown up, but if they really were, they wouldn't be behaving the way they are, right? You should have known better. How many times did we hear that growing up? You should have known better than to do whatever it was. Yeah, that's what he's saying to this church. You don't really know very much about being a Christian now, do you? Well, oh, of course I do. I'm wise. I'm philosophical. Well, that may be the case. I don't really know. But the way you're behaving proves that you don't know very much about Christianity. That's what he's saying. Knowledge, do you not know? They ought to have known better than to drag a brother into, into, into unbelieving courts to settle a dispute. And I want you to notice here in verses 2 and 3, that what he's done is to bring his argument up to the extreme highest level to say, if you can do that, how much more ought you be able to do this, right? He's hoping that they will finally see how ridiculous their behavior has been. He's basically saying this, wake up. The Lord's planning, you know, down the road to have you judge the world. And yet you can't see clear to having one of you judge a trivial matter among yourselves. One day you'll be judging angels. Yet you don't think you're qualified to judge ordinary matters of everyday life here on earth. Or a way to put it that maybe they may understand as well in our day and age is you guys think you're ready for the National Football League. You can't even beat the high school team down the road. That's what he's saying. Step up your game. Verse 4. So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, the ordinary matters of everyday life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Now remember I said that there's a better translation Right? Once again, you have the New American Standard. And then there's another translation that I use sometimes that I find to be better at times. Which one is that? King James. It turns out in this case, King James is, uh, is on target. See, here, the uh, New American Standard asks a question, right? Do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? But let me ask you something. If, if there's a civil court... Do you really think that the despised Christians get to appoint judges? Do they? Can, could, could, like even us today, can we walk in and appoint, that's the judge I want. Now the rich might be able to do that. That's the judge I want. I'm appoint. They can't appoint judges out there in the world. Um, and as a matter of fact, the whole issue was that they did think of these judges of having an account of being legitimate. So this question really doesn't make a lot of sense. It's actually better to take this as a command. In other words, this way. This is the King James. If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life 
set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. In other words, if you've got an issue of everyday life that you need to have settled, pick the least esteemed in the church to do it. That's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying here. I want you to think about that. That is a very wise thing to do when you think about it. The member of the church who is least esteemed by the world should be the one to resolve conflicts between brothers. Remember, God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. What better way to, to, to demonstrate you believe that than by taking the one who's the most despised in your church and making that one be the arbiter, the judge between people having conflicts in the church. I, and I know that's not the natural way. Even today, we probably say, well, I want the pastor, you know, or I want the elder. But every one of us is one body in Christ. Every one of us is indwelt by the Spirit. Now, it is true that you probably want to pick somebody who's mature in the faith rather than a new believer. I get that. But in terms of the world's standards, that doesn't matter. That doesn't enter into it. This will humble arrogant people, wouldn't it? Like, in other words, you're there and and you're a rich person and you want to heighten your status by taking somebody to court. That's That's your motivation. And then the church turns around and says, no, you know what's going to happen? We're going to take so and so. You know, the one who is the slave of so-and-so. And we're going to have that one decide. Can you see that's humbling? The rich person has to now come before the, and put their, their case in the hands of the, 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 the slave. There's no glory in that for the arrogant that want to have you know, status one over the other. It also, think about it, if a poor person is judging, doesn't it remove the bias that occurs if a rich, powerful man were appointed? Right, rich part will have the same problem in the church, especially with this crowd. You know, they're going to want. Oh, I want somebody of my own social class. No, 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 no. You know, for one thing, right? The 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 poor should be, according to the United States, should be judged by a jury of their peers. You know, people just like them. But in any event, it removes the bias. And again, the winner wouldn't be able to brag that, hey, look, this prominent judge found in my favor. You see. Having, having the slave do it is not going to help anyone gain status. So it's a very wise thing to do. All right. 1 Corinthians 6, 5, as we move along. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? This is a very... Um, ironic thing that he's saying. Remember, we started way back in chapter 1 and in chapter 3 as well, in chapter 4. These guys thought they were so wise, remember? They, by their worldly standards, they were judging by their rhetoric and their knowledge of philosophy. They all thought they were so wise. huh? And yet, when it came to an issue in the church, none of them thought they were wise enough to, to settle the matter. He's being ironic here. Basically, he's saying this. You guys are all talk. You go around saying how wise you all are. But you know what? When it comes right down to it, when it comes to actually doing something that takes wisdom, you all run away from it. You all shrink away from something that actually takes wisdom. You want to talk about how wise, but you don't want to do something that a wise person does. You see it? That's what he's really saying here. That's ironic. Because they actually have access to real wisdom. He just taught them that. You have the mind of Christ. 
You have the real wisdom that no unrighteous judge can ever have. The lowliest believer is competent to judge. Please turn to chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Hold your place in 6. Turn to 2. 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 14. Let him who boasts, boast in the prominent judge. Is that what God says in 1 Corinthians? What? Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right. So if that means we're boasting in the Lord, that means we're going to do things His way. We're going to see things as He sees it. Look at 1 Corinthians 2.14. But a natural man, this is the unbeliever, this is the unrighteous judge, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. Yet he himself, notice this, is appraised by no one. I'm going to read this after I give you the word, again, after I give you the word for appraise. But who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That's how God sees it. He says, you know, these natural men in the world, they don't understand the things of the Spirit. They're foolishness. God's ways are foolish to the unbeliever. It can't understand. But he who is spiritual, believers, especially those who are growing, appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. Now, I want to give you the word for appraise, and you'll see how this relates. The word appraised here means to make a judgment on the basis of careful and detailed information. To make a judgment on the basis of careful and detailed information. In other words... Not bias, so automatically we're going to have the rich person win. No, we're going to carefully examine detailed information. That's what a judge should do. Well, let's think about this in terms of of, um, this section, verse 14 through 16 in chapter 2. Let me read it again. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they they are spiritually made... They're spiritually appraised, which means the way they make a judgment is on the basis of the information about the things of the Spirit. They're judging here. So let's go forward. Verse 15. He who is spiritual judges all things. So who do you want to have judge a case between two brethren? He who is spiritual, right? A believer, and particularly one who's growing. Okay. Yet, notice this is the other part. Yet he himself, the believer, is judged by no one. And here we saw this. That he's talking about the unbeliever, the natural man. He say, in fact, the natural man has no ability to judge what's going on with the believer or two believers. So why would you ever bring a case before an unbeliever? All right, so, but apparently the Corinthians don't really value God's wisdom and the things of the Spirit all that much. They actually still would rather go in court before unbelievers. That's a shocking thing. But before we go passing judgment on the Corinthians, you know what we need to do? We need to examine ourselves. And I got one question that I think will bring that clearly into view. I want you to think about this honestly now, all right? And make the, adjust- make the adjustment if you need to. Would you rather sue another Christian in court? then allow a mature Christian to decide your case. I want you to think about that, honestly. 
If you had a case tomorrow against another brother who says, they didn't pay the rent, they owe you this, that, that, I think that belongs to me and not them, um, or any of that, right? Would you rather sue another that Christian in court rather than bring it to a mature Christian to decide the case? That's the real issue here. And that's a challenge, I think, for all of us, especially, again, today when we're bombarded by the idea of you know, suing somebody in court. It's a real challenge. But th- and, and you may say, well, that's unrealistic. But that's what Paul is saying. See, my job here is to tell you what the Bible says, not my opinion. All right? That's what he's saying. This is exactly the question that he, he wants the Christians to answer. Would you rather sue another Christian in court than allow a mature Christian to decide your case? Well, you know, let that sink in. I want that to change how you think about these kind of things. All right, 1 Corinthians 6, 7. Let's continue. Actually then, oh, was I, was I somewhere else? Yes, sorry about that. I was in chapter 2. I'm going to give you a minute to get back to chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 7. Actually then, it's already defeat to you. You want to win in court? Well, by the very fact that you have a case against another brother, you've already lost. That's what he's saying. You've already lost. Why? The title of today's message. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded than to bring your brother into a law court? Especially if you're very well off and he isn't. Even if he didn't pay the rent this month. You know, you got, you got thousands and thousands of dollars. Can't you, like, give him a break for a month? You know, maybe he couldn't work that month. But this is what he's saying. Would you not rather be wronged? Wouldn't you, rather not, would you not rather be defrauded yourself? Well, notice this, he says. On the contrary. See, he knows what's going on. He says, no, here's what's really going on. You yourselves are doing wrong to your brother by bringing him into court. That's what he's saying. You are doing, you're defrauding your brother by bringing him into court. Now, why is that? Well, if you're a person who would rather, a rich person in particular, rather go into the law court of the unbeliever than to allow another Christian to settle your dispute, why would you do that? I'll tell you why. Because you figure you've got a much better chance of winning there than with another, with another Christian deciding the case. Now, what does that suggest? You've got a pretty weak case. right? So if you've got a weak case, but you're going to try to prevail over a brother anyway... You're wronging him. You're defrauding him. You're probably taking something that, that they need, that, that's really theirs rightfully. That's a part of this too. Paul's getting to the heart of the issue here in chapter, verses 7 and 8. I want to tell you one more thing about the Roman civil courts in Paul's day. They were spectacles. The parties were brutal to one another. Nothing was, no holes barred as they say in wrestling. In other words, the plaintiff, the one bringing the lawsuit, would work to destroy the reputation of the defendant. That's one of the tactics they use to prevail. I mean, it still happens today. You know, they say, well, you know, this, this one over here, don't you know, you know, he's committed this before, and, you know, look at me, I'm an upstanding citizen, who are you going to believe? Right? This is not, times never change. But now, now let's, let's bring it into the church. If there's somebody in the church that is working out there in the world to destroy the reputation of another brother, is that good? Is that bad? It's very bad. It's very bad. Now keep in mind, too, that they were 
judge shopping, as it were. In other words, they figured they had a much better chance of winning before the unrighteous judge than they would if a simple believer were judging the case. And again, this suggests that very often in civil courts, the rich were trying to rip off the poor. Mm. How wrong is that? Right? Very wrong. So that means they're in the wrong. They attempt to destroy the lowly brother. They want to defraud him by maybe withholding legitimate pay or selling, this happens a lot, selling inferior goods at high prices and the guy doesn't want to pay and you bring him to court. By the way, James saw this going on in his own congregation. Please turn to James chapter 2. Oops, I already said that. James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. James chapter 2, verse 1. Same thing. Who's hauling who into court? Who is the church fawning all over? And who is the church ignoring? Let's see it. James chapter 2, verse 1. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, James 2, 1. Give you a moment. James is tough to find. I always have a hard time. Is it before Peter or after? You know. Anyway, James, don't want to confuse you even more. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. There it is. Now, who is it? We're going to see who is it that the people in the church favoring? Let's keep reading. For if a man goes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and then also here comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes, right? You're making a judgment already. You have no idea about what's going inside the hearts of these two men. All you're saying is, is, well, that one has good clothes and a nice gold ring. That one over there is dressed shoddily. So you know what? That's the guy I want. That's the guy that we're going to treat well. Can you see how worldly that is? Can you see how that's just dragging the standards of the world right into the assembly where it has no business being? So he says, if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes, and you say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. In other words, you recognize that you know, you're going to bow down to me because you're not as good, or you're going to stand. That's basically what they're saying. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? You've dishonored that poor man. Notice this, though. Is it not the rich who oppress you? And what do they do? Personally drag you into court. You see, that's what usually happened. It was the rich who dragged the poor into court. And not only that, do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? In other words, you know, let's say you're in a a court and and the plaintiff talks about something and then the defendant says something like, you know what, we're both believers in Christ here. You know, we're on the same terms. Can you imagine how an unrighteous judge might respond to that? I don't care about, you know, means nothing to me, right? 
So here you are, taking a brother into a court where they blaspheme the very name of our Lord. That's what he's saying. Okay, we're going to end today back in 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 7. Back in 1 Corinthians 6. I'm going to buy you all holy ribbons. Holy ribbons are where you put this place where you know you're going to be a lot. I can't show you my Bible at home. I have it right there in 1 Corinthians 6. Next week it'll be 1 Corinthians 7. Any of it. Just having some fun with you. Yeah, so now finally Paul is appealing to the saints in Corinth to get out of the mud. Stop behaving like saints. The saints God has made you to be. Again, 1 Corinthians 6, 7. Actually then, it's already a defeat to you that you even have the lawsuit with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? You know who thinks like that? I'll tell you who thinks like that. Jesus Christ. Please go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. He showed his love by being wronged for our benefit. Did he not? Didn't he, wasn't he rich in heaven and become poor for our sake? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Did he not allow himself to be abused, mistreated, found guilty in courts where he was innocent? Yes, he did. Why? For us. For the members of his body in particular. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being together, by being of one mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. In the church, we should have one purpose. We shouldn't have conflicting selfish interests, right? One body, one spirit, one faith, one Lord, one Baptist, united. Then he goes on and shows the implications of that. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. This is exactly the issue with the civil law courts, right? Selfishness, I want what's mine. Empty conceit, I'm going to prevail and people are going to raise my status. Don't do it. Do nothing from that. But instead, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. You should rather be wronged. You should rather be defrauded than to do something from selfishness or conceit. Do not, verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You know, I... I, uh, son, I I came out of the, uh, the world with a, with a job, and a lot of times it would, I would be in a court. Not, not a, it was actually a, a regulatory court, you know. And, uh, and there were a lot of times when I wanted to see things from the other person's way. And I would do that sometimes. And, man, the client would be so angry with me if I saw anything that, uh, by, on, uh, according to the ways of the opposite team. Anything at all. Even when they were right and we were wrong. Isn't that the case? Do you ever see a lawyer get up there in court and start to say, you know what, now it's time for us to consider the best interests of our opponent. Doesn't happen, does it? No. 
But it should happen in the church. That's the point. This attitude where we look out for the interest of others, that's how Jesus Christ thought. That was his attitude all the time. Rather than selfishly fighting for what you think is yours, you think it is, may not be, be willing to lose out rather than hurt your brother and sister in Christ or destroy the unity of the body. You know, I could do this, but I know it's going to happen. It's going to be it's going to horrible for the church. I'm not going to do it. I would rather be wronged or defrauded than hurt the body of Christ. That's the mental attitude. And Christ is the perfect example. Please turn to 1 Peter 2, verse 21. 1 Peter 2, verse 21. We're going to take a look at a couple of passages that bring out this is the way for the Christian to be. This is how we are to think of one another. The way Jesus did. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. 1 Peter 2.21 For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example to follow in his steps who committed no sin totally innocent nor was any deceit found in his mouth never lied while being reviled having his reputation destroyed he didn't revile in return While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to the one, his father, who judges righteously. He knew who the ultimate judge was, and he put everything before his father. And he himself, what was he doing? He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. That's what the love of God is all about. That's what it's all about. You know, in 1 Corinthians 13, you don't have to go there, I'll just recite it. You can write it down for later, but many of you know this passage. (coughs) Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. Love doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. God's love never seeks its own. It's not provoked. It does not take into account wrong suffered. Why not rather be wrong? It doesn't even take it into account. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. We are to walk in love, imitating the love of God. What does that mean in our subject today? Basically, it means this. Whoops. We shouldn't sue to collect a debt from a brother who cannot repay us. That's one of the things. We shouldn't do that. We shouldn't sue to collect a debt from our brother who cannot repay us. Rather, we're called to forgive the debts of that brother. Right? The Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those. Right? That's our mental attitude anyway. If a brother can't repay you, just forgive the debt. Why not rather be wronged? Because that's what God in Christ has done for us. He's forgiven us. And that is the best way of all. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to just come to you today and thank you once again for the example of Jesus Christ, who ought to, his, his thinking ought to guide every one of our decisions in life. And we only can do that through the power of the Spirit and having the Word of God in our heart. That's why what we do here is so important, as you know, Father. We ask, actually, that you, through the Spirit, would change hearts to see how important it is to see things your way through the eyes of your Word. That that's what transforms us 
That's what you've called us to do. You called us so that one day we'll be holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That we will be judging the world and angels. And this is the way you mature us, through your word and the power of the Spirit. So as we leave today, Father, we would just ask that the first thing that we would have in our hearts with any brother or sister would be the love, the kind of love you have for us. And we also ask today, Father, that you and guide and direct our outreach session today because the, the unbeliever needs us more than anything. They need to know what we know. And, and you've called us to tell them. So we just ask that you would bless that time as well. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. <laughs> now, we'll gather together for a Bible study once again this Thursday, June 13th at 7 o'clock. Also want to remind you about our giving policy, that we don't tithe. You know, we say, the Lord says, listen, as you have the ability to do so, and it's your heart, your free desire to support the preaching of the Word of God, then go do it. Not tithing, not passing around a bucket, but just in your heart, as you know what you want to do with your money based on the Lord blessing you, you have the freedom to do that. That's the Christian giving. And remember too, this gospel that we preach, it's really straightforward. It's that God's Son became man. He died on the cross for our sins. For the sins of all the lost out there. He was buried, and on the third day He was raised from the dead so that whoever believes in God's Son, the good news about Him, will never perish, but has eternal life. That's the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's simple. It's so simple. God loves you. This is how He showed it. He's provided a way for you to be righteous. It's simple. Believe good news like a child would. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today I won't be up here um, with having questions just because I want to get to the um, session for outreach. Okay, so we'll do that next week. Father, we thank you once again for all you've given us. Help our hearts to be softened so that we are willing more and more and more to forgive others the way you've forgiven us. We ask this in Christ's name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.